The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. How's that? Ooh, there we go. Okay. So, um, I've been talking in the last few weeks about um, delusion and um, delusion is one of the three roots that the Buddha talked about as being the um, the sources, the deepest sources of why we struggle, why we suffer, why we get caught in reactivity, why we have um, um, pain, mental pain in particular, in our lives. And, um, you know, these, the three roots of suffering, and in fact what the Buddha points us to in terms of freedom from suffering, is the abandonment of greed, aversion, and delusion. Greed being the kind of the movement towards acquiring something, wanting something, having something. Aversion, a kind of a similar uh, pushing something away, wanting to get rid of something. And then delusion, um, this is what we've been exploring. Delusion is much harder to speak about and much harder to to see, to recognize. So... um, you know, greed, aversion, and delusion. Um, you know, greed, greed, and aversion are—they—they they begin to be with our mindfulness practice. We begin to be able to understand how they contribute to our struggles, because we see with with wanting something with greed that um, we we first of all, if we don't get something we want, we're frustrated. And so that movement of greed becomes frustrated and produces uh, some struggles around why why can't I get what I want? You know what am I what am I doing wrong? How do, how how am I failing? I've got to figure out how to fix this. And so that frustrated greed becomes a source of suffering. If we do get something that we want, often we're um, we're struggling to try to figure out how not to lose it. Uh, so, for instance, you know, a, a kind of an acquisitiveness we have, not only about material things, but about views that people have around us, um, you know, that we want them to see us a certain way. And that's a form of greed also, a wanting somebody, kind of, kind of trying to control how people see us. And that, um, how controllable is that? <laughs> to see how people see us, you know, to, to control how people see us. And so, you know, we can start to see how greed, um, you know, creates some tension in our system to, to lead to suffering. And likewise, aversion. Aversion often is a more direct experience of, of um, struggle, of suffering. You know, the, the kind of emotions that go along with aversion tend to be very obviously suffering, like um, uh, anger, frustration, irritation, um, hatred, rage. So we can feel directly in our system the, uh, 
the um, the stickiness and the pain of those of those struggles around aversion. And so, in in observing greed and aversion, we begin to understand it's it's. It's not too hard in looking at our experience to begin to understand how greed and aversion are are contributing to our struggles in life, how they're a part of why we suffer. Anytime we are suffering, often there's some form of wanting something to be other than it is. Either we want it to, to stay or we want it to go. But then the Buddha includes delusion in there, and um, often we're not even aware of delusion. And um, so it's much harder to understand how delusion is a, a foundational piece of the struggle, of the, of the way our mind creates suffering. Delusion is actually the most foundational piece of that. Delusion is already found in greed and aversion, in fact. Greed, the, 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 the movement of greed, I mean, greed itself is kind of the, the stickiness, the, 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 the wanting or the, the pull towards something pleasant. Aversion is the movement away, the kind of desire to separate from something unpleasant. And so that, those are the basic movements of greed and aversion, and those are what we can begin to see in, in our meditation, that pull towards that movement away. We can feel that in our hearts. Well, delusion underlies greed in the belief that that movement is useful. And so the delusion that's embedded in greed is that Having this thing will make me happy. Acquiring this thing is going to make me happy. And so it's a, it's a subtler level of what's going on in greed. You know, often we're just so focused on what's out there, on acquiring something, that we're not aware of this underlying belief that it's going to, uh, it, that we, we are believing it's going to ultimately make me happy. Uh, aversion, something similar. The, the kind of delusion underlying aversion is the belief that not having that in my life or separating myself from that is, is going to make me happy or going to make me feel better. And so there's a way in which we, um, we are motivated by those underlying beliefs towards the greed towards the movement of acquisition, towards the movement of getting rid of in our lives. And so the, um, the Buddha pointed to how this acquisitiveness, this movement of acquiring, which includes acquiring um, not having things in our lives, kind of a pushing away in a way, the, the, this kind of movement to control our environment, to control the world, to be the way we'd like it to be. The underlying motivation of that, um, that desire is a form of delusion, that that is what being happy would be. That that is essentially as good as it could possibly get in terms of happiness. And so that, that delusion that it's as good as it could possibly get to have what I want, to get rid of what I don't want. Um, we talked about that 
to some extent last week when, or not last week, a couple of weeks ago when I was here, when we talked about um, the delusion of unreliability, that essentially what we begin to see in, uh, as we explore this movement, like the movement towards greed, having what I want will make me happy. The, the Buddha offered a, uh, an exploration around that to um, check in. How, how, how long does it make you happy? How much happiness does it provide to have that thing? To have somebody see you in that way? And how reliable is that? For instance, around you know, having people have some, a certain opinion of you, it's often not very reliable to try to hang our hats on making sure people think of us in a certain way. And so checking into that reliability, we see that it's not terribly reliable, that kind of happiness. And so it begins to, as we see that, it begins to undermine that, that delusive belief that this is happiness, that this is as good as it might get. And so this is a, now this is a flavor of, of delusion that kind of underlies the the whole way that we have habitually learned as human beings it's not it's not personal to us this movement around greed and aversion and the beliefs underlying greed and aversion are kind of built into our human system and so we uh you know we're not we're not alone in this exploration we're not alone in this in this um movement to try to construct our worlds to be controllable, to be the way we'd like them to be. And so um, that's kind of a, a broad brush overview around the, the three aspects of um, the Buddha calls them the unwholesome roots to our struggles in life, greed, aversion, and delusion. And so I've been exploring delusion in some depth because, you know, by its very nature, it's really hard to see. I've talked about the kind of delusion that is just basically disconnected from experience. That was one of the first talks we, we explored around delusion, that when we are not present in this moment, when we're lost in thought, thinking about past or future, we are essentially losing our lives because all that's happening is just what's happening right here and right now. And if we're lost in thought, we are not aware of what's happening right now. And that's a form of delusion. So that, that's kind of the simplest form of delusion to start to see. When we wake up from being lost in thought, the recognition of how disconnected we were is pointing to that that kind of delusion that we uh, that we get lost and not are not connected with what's happening in this moment. So that's that's the simplest kind of delusion to see, and we can we can begin to see it in the moments as mindfulness returns in our meditation. We can see that um, in that moment when mindfulness returns, we can kind of remember just a brief. It's like. There's a memory of what was happening just before as mindfulness returns. And there's a kind of a sense of the way the mind was like in a cloud or um, swirling in its own ideas and not connected. So we get a taste of that kind of delusion in the moment when mindfulness returns. 
And then there's um, what I called a more personal delusion, a delusion that is not so much about not being aware of what's happening in the present moment. And this is a more insidious kind of delusion because we are aware of what's happening in the present moment, but what we're not seeing is that there's views and opinions and filters that are kind of um, skewing how we take information in. And we think we are taking information in accurately as if our... You know, our eyes were cameras and our ears were microphones and just, you know, picking up everything in the system, picking up everything that's out there to be picked up. But that's not quite how our human organism works. When we have views, ideas, opinions, that perspective filters what we take in. And so without knowing it, views about who we are, what we're able to do, views about who other people are, what they're able to do, views about what's normal in human relationships, normal in quotes, in human relationships, um, all of that, and views about um, how I engage with people that I know, how I engage with people that I don't know, all of these things are very deeply conditioned in us, and they are views that have been constructed through our lives often based on our families, how our families are, based on our cultures, based on how we were treated in the classroom, how we were treated on the playground. All of these things have contributed to views that we have, and those views filter how we take in experience. Um, even something as simple as an agenda can filter how we take in experience. You might, you know, recognize this kind of thing if, um, you know, if you are in a situation where um, you know, suddenly you think, oh, I need this thing. You know, I need, I need this kind of thing. You know, like my car is failing and I, I, need, a new, I need a new car or something. And, and suddenly, you know, like cars and looking at cars becomes a very high priority for the mind. It's not even like you're doing it consciously, but it's become an agenda that I need to figure out what the next car will be, and so the mind starts orienting to that. In that orientation, actually what's... And that's a normal function of our mind, this orientation based on an agenda. But what's, what the delusive part about this is, is that we believe we are still seeing everything else, that we are, kind of, that we are not missing anything. But that, um, that kind of filtering that we do creates, it's like, it's like a Swiss cheese thing. It like lets certain things in. It's like we're looking at the world through this filter. And certain things come in and certain things don't come in. So the belief that we um, are seeing things accurately is a delusion. We are seeing things as one, I think it's um, maybe Anais Nin. Maybe one, some of you can correct me on this, but said something like, um, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. And that's, there's a lot of truth to that, that we have these filters. And so we are not taking in things accurately. And so the, those kinds of filters, many of those kinds of filters are human filters, I mean, I mean, our uh, cultural filters or personal filters. 
And then there's a deeper layer of delusion. And those, those, those cultural filters, those personal filters, can begin to be revealed when we find ourselves uncomfortable in dealing with people who have different filters. Like we, we um, maybe if you, you know, travel somewhere to a different culture, a different place where different views are held, and you start having conversations with people, you might find that there's some discomfort you know, it could be something as simple as, again, you know, how close you stand to somebody you've never met before or how much eye contact you make. These, these views about how humans interact have been created through conditioning. And so when we find ourselves uncomfortable in, re, in, in a, interacting with people, sometimes it's this level of view of human, of, of, of like cultural or personal view that's being uh, kind of shaken up. And so we can, um, we can start to recognize, if we're interested in this, if we're interested in this, we can start to recognize, oh, this is, this is a, an idea that I have about how people are supposed to relate to each other. It's not maybe actually universal. So I, I spent some time on that some weeks ago, so I don't want to keep going into that piece of it. Um, I want to move on to the next piece I want to talk about today. Um, so there are these uh, kind of cultural lenses that we bring to experience that filter in, ha- filter how we take in experience. And then there's a deeper level of more human filters, ones that we share as human beings, regardless of culture. And these are also forms of views or filters, but they seem to be more connected with our human organism than how we are enculturated or how we are conditioned in our, in our lives. And so these three, they're three basic um, uh, perspectives as human beings that we tend to share, and that is that we tend to take what is impermanent to be permanent. We tend to impute permanence to something that's impermanent. We tend to impute reliability that something will be a place where I can have lasting happiness to something that is not reliable. And we tend to impute a sense of self or impute uh, a self to what is not self. So I spent um, some time talking about the first two, about talking about uh, talking about taking what is impermanent to be permanent and what is unreliable to re- be reliable in previous weeks. And so today I'd like to open the discussion, and I think it will just be opening it. Um, we'll see how many how many talks this goes. I'm not going to try to do a comprehensive exploration of this um, topic of selfing and not self today, but I'd like to open it up and uh, begin the conversation. And then we'll see where it goes and how long this conversation lasts. So um, this delusion, so this is pointing to, again, the delusion that what we take as self is not actually what we think it is. That's maybe a way to frame the delusion around not self. The delusion around not self is that we impute a a reality 
of some sort to um, a beingness, to a sense of I or me or mine. And this is often how the Buddha speaks about um, the sense of self, that it's I-making and my-making, that it is um, you know, a sense of uh, considering this is, this, is, this is me, this is mine, or this is who I am. So different ways of considering self. And so we all have, have senses of that. I mean, it's, it, like, it seems so, it seems so um, obvious in some ways. I mean, our experience, what, what we um, experience in our daily lives is that it feels like there's some kind of continuity of some being that, you know, we, we maybe don't remember everything from our childhood, but there's kind of a sense of, of, you know, continuity. And I think this is one of the places where a sense of self kind of latches onto is this sense of continuity, this sense of, yeah, I remember what happened yesterday. And, you know, I think about things and I plan things that are going to happen tomorrow. And sometimes they actually happen and so there's this sense of I'm choosing to do something and then later this thing happens. So there's this sense of self. A sense, and it just seems true. It just, you know, when I, when I first heard this teaching, it's like it didn't make any sense to me. It's like it just seems so inherently true that I exist. But this experience, I exist, or I am, uh, this sense that I am, this sense of uh, continuity, doesn't bear up under much scrutiny. You know, when we actually start to look at, well, what is it that I think is I or me or mine? What, what is it that I think of as I or me or mine? Um, we begin to recognize that it's hard to pin down. You know, it's it's not it's not uh, you know it's not very easy to to actually point to. Well, this this is actually what I think of as I or me, and that itself is a pointer. That itself is interesting to consider that when we start trying to turn to look at what we think of as I or me, really uh, hard to put your finger on it. And if we, you know, if we, and yet our minds are so convinced of the idea that if we say, well, okay, um, you know, well, okay, I'm like this. I am... I am a miserable person, you know. And if we find ourselves at some point not being miserable, it's like, well, yeah, I'm I'm not I'm I'm not I'm not happy. I'm happy now, but what I am is miserable, kind of imputing to our experience a continuity that's not actually there. We might we might do that. Or we might in recognizing that, oh, you know, 
wow, my emotions really come and go as we begin to, in meditation, start to really recognize how um, in flux our experience is. Sometimes we might think, well, yeah, emotions. Okay, I guess I get that I'm not, I'm not inherently a miserable person. But I must be the one who feels these emotions. So it gets a little subtler. I must be the one who feels these things. Or I must be the one who knows things. And so it gets a little, and so then we start to maybe look at, at that. You know, what is that experience? So what, what we usually take to be self, what we impute to be self, is more, it's not, it's not that there's not, not some continuity, some kind of flow or stream of experience. The, um, the uh, I mean, like, for instance, this, this body, this mind here, has a process that it's tumbling on. You know, the thoughts that arise in this mind are not arising in your mind. The experiences arising in this body, you have, there are experiences arising in that body that are different from experiences arising in this body. And so there are like streams of experience that we, that are being felt, experienced, known. And uh, in that stream of experience, there are um, um, intentions and um, uh, agency that tumbles on. And yet, there's not the, the, the understanding, and you don't have to believe this, I'm just going to try to talk about this, but the, the understanding in the Buddhist tradition is that there's not any one, like, stable part of experience. Any one stable thing that can be called the self that what we call self is a process. What we, attri- what, to, what we attribute to being, a sense, to being self is a sense of self that is a process, not a thing, not an actual thing, not something that is permanent and existent, but a, an ongoing process that's never the same in any two moments. And so one moment to the next, there's nothing that's identical one moment to the next. And so we can think of some analogies that might help us to connect to this understanding. Um, The analogy of a river, for instance. You know, what is a river? We think about a river, you know, like I was a couple of years ago, I went to, um, to the Big Bend uh, National Park in Texas, which is right on the Rio Grande River. It's a, it's a you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a river. It's got, it's dug canyons. It's, you know, we know where it is. We can draw a line on the map and point to it like there's the river. And yet what is that river? Is it... Is it the water in the river? I mean, in some ways, the river is, is, is defined. In some ways, river needs the water. You know, it's, it's like when, um, and at times, 
at times of the year, various parts of the Rio Grande turn into a dry stream bed. And so it's like, it doesn't look much like a river at that point. So is it the water? And what, is, what happens in the river with the water? It's like, you know, you take a bucket of water out of the river. Is that the river? No, it's a bucket of water. And we know, by, based on the way rivers work, that in any moment, the water that's there now is not there in the next moment. It's, it's moving on. Ultimately, the water in the river is heading to the ocean or to be absorbed into the soil. And so the, the water that we can take out of the river in this moment, immediately there's, there's water flowing on. And we wouldn't even say that that water in that bucket, no, that's a bucket of water. That's not the river. Okay, so the water isn't the river. Well, maybe it's the stream bed then. There's a little more stability of the stream bed in the river. But if it's just the stream bed, you know, if, if something, if climate changes, and there was a story about this recently, a, a, big, a big shift of a river because of climate change, uh, there was some, some kind of, this was in the news maybe a few weeks ago, some kind of um, change in the way a glacier worked, and it diverted a river completely to flow into like a different direction entirely. So change there. It's like that riverbed is still there, but the river's someplace else now. So the riverbed isn't the river. Is it the line on the map? Well, that's an idea of the river. It's a, it's a representation of the river, a line on the map. Is it the name of the river? No, that's clearly not the river. That's just a concept. So what is the river? It's a process. It has no thing you can point to that, to say this is the essence of the river. That's a similar kind of thing to the sense of self. We are a process. Our sense of body may be kind of like the riverbed. It's around a pretty long time, but it changes. It grows. I mean, this body is very different than it was 50 years ago. It's not the same body. And largely through understanding science, most of the cells in the body replaced every seven years. Some of the neurons, I understand, are... are, uh, there for life, but this body itself, every cell. So it's not even the same physical body. Nope. Then there's, you know, there's, um, there's our feelings. And again, there's a tumbling on of feelings. There's a tumbling on of perceptions, of, of ideas. No, no one thing that we can really point to when we start to look at this. And then another analogy that, that can be a, a different perspective in to, uh, to, to understanding this process nature of the sense of self. And the sense of self is an experience. There is a feeling of a sense of self But that is a construction. That, too, is 
a process in our minds. In effect, what we call self is a concept, an idea in our minds that's continually being constructed and renewed. And so the other analogy that I like to point to around around, um, selfing is the analogy of the rainbow. So... um, With a rainbow, the conditions have to be just right in order to see the rainbow. So, or in order to experience a rainbow. Um, When I was uh, um, up in, um, I was up in Alaska a few years ago with my family on uh, a vacation in Denali, and there were rainbows a lot there, a lot of, uh, a lot of, um, uh, the conditions were right for that. Um, and what it takes is, you know, the, the conditions of the sun being at a certain uh, position in the sky, because if it's too high, you know, basically the, the sun, the water in the air, and the position of the person observing all have to be in the right places in order for the rainbow to appear. You know, so the sun has to be kind of low on the horizon so that, it, you know, the the sun is shining through the water at a, at a level that the human eye can see and dispersing the light to create the rainbow. And so it takes a positioning of the human, uh, the human eye to experience the rainbow. It takes the positioning of the sun and the water in order to see the rainbow. The... Um, conditions for that come together to create something that's experienced. It's not that a rainbow is completely an idea in our mind, but it is dependent on conditions. Any one of those things changes. The sun behind a cloud, the water suddenly um, stopping, us closing our eyes or being someplace else, we don't experience that rainbow. So the, again, the, the kind of conditions coming together in that moment to create the experience of rainbow, it's not any, it's not its own thing. It's not like the rainbow is like a thing that's pasted on the sky. It's a set of conditions that come together and fall apart and come together and fall apart. So, um, as I, I said a few minutes ago, you know, it, it feels like there's a lot of evidence for a for ourselves for a self. You know that that we. Um, yeah, because we remember things, we uh, have the sense of, um, I was here yesterday, probably going to be here tomorrow. There's, a, there's the imputation of a, like with the river, there's an imputation of a thing there that when we start to think about, well, what is that thing that was here yesterday and that will be here tomorrow? We start, we start to, to, to kind of question or, or 
Like, well, what is that actually? It seems obvious, but again, it's not so obvious. This, this sense of self that we have, this idea that I exist, becomes like one of those filters I talked about a few minutes ago. Um, you know, of cult- like a cultural filter that I, that we that I talked about a few minutes ago. The sense of um, some idea that influences how we take in experience, and this idea of a sense of self functions like that in many ways. When we have the idea of a sense of self, the way we look at our experience seems to confirm that I exist, and yet. The, the, the um, evidence, let's say the evidence for not-self actually is all over the place. We just don't take it in. We don't consciously recognize it because of this view, this idea that I exist. So a couple of examples that you're all familiar with. So often a sense of self is related to a, um, a sense of control. And in fact, this is one of the very first places the Buddha pointed in terms of helping people to understand or undermine their, or kind of like shake up the idea that um, a sense of self is real or, or there or true. Um, he pointed to okay, you know, he was probably talking to a particular group of people and understood that, in particular, this group of people looked at the ability to control as being a foundational sense of I or me or mine. And and it feels that way. You know, I choose, like, I'm going to choose to touch the bell. And I can do that. Therefore, I exist. It's a, it's a belief that's prompted on that, that's, that's laid on top of that idea. And yet that, that sense of control of agency is a big place of where we take, we take our sense of self. I, I can choose to do something. I'm going to move my hand, I'm going to touch this glass, I'm going to continue speaking, I'm going to be silent for a moment. Seems like a, seems like a self in control. Well, the Buddha encouraged his um, followers to begin to look at that notion of control and to say, okay, well, maybe there is a little bit of control we have, but this body, for instance, can I say, when I wish... Body, be like this. Body, don't be like this. You know, we cut our finger with a knife. We can't say, body, stop bleeding. It's a process that's doing its thing. If we're in pain, we can't say, body, stop being in pain. And so there's a sense of, like, I can control some Aspects, there's a, 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 a kind of an agency over certain aspects of experience, but not, and even that agency we will begin to see, probably not today will I talk about this, but that agency we can start to see as 
as not necessarily even having much control, not even uh, being me or I am. Well, actually, I have an example that may begin to point to that. So, and then you know, then there's um, how how we feel. Can I say feeling be you know feeling be like this? Feeling don't be like that. Often, no, we don't have that kind of control. And so this notion of control, as we start to really see it, this notion of I can be in control over my experience, a, even a beginning look at that begins to point us to, wow, how little control I have. It's kind of amazing. And so this, this, um, this is one good place to begin to look at the evidence for not-self. And this is one of the things the Buddha was pointing to his his followers around, his, his, uh, his disciples. He was pointing to look at where you think there's control and check it out. Is there control? And so we sit down to meditate. I sit down to meditate. I choose, I decide, I'm going to pay attention to the breath. That's me deciding that. The feeling is that's me deciding that. I'm choosing. I've got agency. I'm going to direct my attention to the breath. And indeed, I can do that for a breath. Or maybe two. And then what happens? The mind wanders. Did you decide to make your mind wander? Did it just happen? Did you think, oh, I'm going to stop paying attention to the breath right now and start thinking about this thing from yesterday? Sometimes we might do that. But more often when our mind wanders, it just wanders. So who did that? Was it in another you? The you that sat down to meditate, where did that you go when the mind wandered? And then even more amazing, I think, is that at some point in that mind wandering, it's kind of wandering around, going off here and there, past, future. At some point, mindfulness returns. Who did that? It feels like I'm back. But who made me come back? I didn't have much control over that. So right there in this very simple experience of seeing the wandering mind, this is evidence for not-self. It's evidence for the uncontrollability of our minds that we don't have control, that there's not a being there, not, a, not a, a kind of an abiding entity that is in charge. So just a few minutes, I want, just for just a couple minutes, I want to take some questions in just a couple minutes, but I want to just point to briefly, and then more, I think, in the next week. Um, Ways to begin being curious about this. The place to begin isn't to try to use this teaching of no self to say, oh, there's no self, so what I'm experiencing is not real, or something like that. I mean, we can do use this, this teaching on not-self in really bizarre ways sometimes. It's like, well, there's no self, so it doesn't matter what I do. Or, 
or, um, you know, there's no self anyway, so it doesn't make any difference. Something. We do weird things with some of these teachings. Um, One of the most helpful things to do around this teaching is to begin to explore what is it that feels like self. So when a sense of self feels kind of obvious, like, yeah, I'm doing this, I need this, I have to fix this or change this, when there's a strong sense of I or me or mine, begin to look at it, begin to be curious about it. What is it that I'm calling I or me? You know, and this is most... um, most useful, I think, when it's an obvious sense of self. Um, you know, certain kinds of emotions have a strong kind of congealing of self, of self-righteousness, for example, pride. Um, uh, those kinds of emotions, you know, you can really kind of begin to feel the sense of, of I. And what is that? What is that experience? What are we taking to be self? Begin to be curious about it, not, not to try to overlay the idea of not-self on it, but to be curious about, well, what is it that I'm actually attributing some kind of solidity to here? What am I calling self here? At one point, I began you know, looking at this, and what I discovered for myself is that there are certain familiar like, configurations of body and mind you know, certain contractions in the body, certain moods or emotions in the mind that, that are habitual, that happen a lot. And yet, that's me. That's me. But it's like it happens for a little while, and then a little while later, there's another kind of congealing of different patterns. Like, oh, well, that's me. That's, that's, that's who I am. And as we begin to kind of watch this flow of different contractions and feelings that are associated with it, we start to recognize that, well, the contractions in the body and the emotions, they're, it's like the rainbow. You know, it's a coming together of a certain thing, certain set of things, but it's not very stable. I think sometimes what we take to be self is a certain things that repeat a lot, you know, kind of patterns or habits that come back a lot, like for myself, um, before I started practicing and really exploring this pattern, I was a miserable person and I believed I was miserable and thought I would be miserable for life. I mean, I knew there were times when I wasn't miserable, but again, I kind of pointed to this earlier. I said, to myself when I wasn't miserable. It's like, well, yeah, I, yeah, I'm happy now, but really what I am is miserable and kind of carried along or dragged that sense of self, of memory into the present moment through a habit of that. And so not really taking in this, this different experience of what it means to be happy in this moment. This is the rainbow that's created right now. This is the happy rainbow. This is the miserable rainbow. This is the confused rainbow. It's just a bunch of different configurations coming together in a moment. And as I 
began to be curious about it. I remember on one on one um, time I was meditating. Um, I was in the kitchen and working in the kitchen and scraping a pot after breakfast. And as I picked up that pot and started scraping it, the mind experienced anger. And I felt, I thought, oh, I'm so angry. And so I was just I was like, okay, but I'll just notice this because I'm meditating. So anger, scraping the pot, anger, anger. And some part of my mind was like, oh, I'm going to be like this for hours. It's gonna, maybe even forever. And then I picked up the next pot. And I was happy. And it's like such a shift in an instant to go from anger to happiness. It's like it was confusing in that moment in a, in a way. It's like, wow, it's gone, that anger. And taking in the goneness of it, I wasn't attributing to my experience that, oh, it's hiding somewhere. It's, it's really still there. Our experiences are constructed and fall apart and constructed and fall apart. And it's, uh, it's kind of this attribution of a continuity that is one of the places where we have this sense of self, where, where we attribute that sense of self, kind of like with the river. You know, it's like we see this thing that looks kind of similar day to day, and yet when we start taking it apart, we see it's not at all the same. It's a process. And so there is a process at work here. It's not that there's not a process, an independent process, like this, this process here is different than that process there. And so there's an attribution of some kind of self to that process. So... Um, any any brief comments or questions about this? And here, I'll just pass this mic over. Oh, let's see if that one works. So I gather from this discussion that we could still agree with Descartes. I think, therefore I am. He didn't say, I control, therefore I am. <laughs> well, in, in some ways, I think that that notion of Descartes, you know, it's like, I think, therefore I am, that's essentially where the sense of self is, 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 arises, through thinking. In, in Western society, well, for sure. Well, in, in, in general, I think, well, it could come through feeling, it could come through, um, you know, a, a kind of a, a, a knowing um, that sense of I am, but that is that is one way that we attribute self, and so in some ways I think it's true. I think therefore I think myself into being, and yet the I amness is misattributed to being solid. So, but he doesn't say solid because thinking isn't solid. That's At least true. mine That's isn't. That's true. Yeah, yeah. So, um, unfortunately, we do have to stop. I think, um, well, we'll, t we'll continue the conversation. We'll continue the conversation next week. <laughs> Thank you.